January 1, I started pastoring for the first time in my life some years ago. Never pastored before, never been anywhere before. And a few short weeks after that, they said, you're going to take a group to church camp, to youth camp. So I took eight young men to youth camp, get there, and a new place, new pastor, knew a lot of things, had no idea what in the world I was doing. And you get there, and like all the pastors would like congregate during the afternoon free time. And they would kind of sit over there underneath the pavilion or up there on the hill. And they'd kind of sit there, and, and they'd talk shop. And I thought, that's just not really my place. And uh, there was a, another man that would be down there on the basketball court, either schooling or getting schooled by the students. <laughs> schooling. And schooling. Schooled. Schooled. Schooling. Okay, so yes. he was getting schooled. So, uh, But I was sitting there watching, and I'd see all the adults and like all the pastors, and I had this idea that that was, that was what I was supposed to be doing, and that's what I was supposed to look like, and all these ideas, and I'm looking at that going, but the students, nobody's spending time with the students except for this one man, and so I said, well, who is the only adult that was down there, and they said, well, that is Kevin George, and I said, well, what does he do? They said, well, he pastors a church in Sherman, and I thought from that day forward, I wanted to be like Kevin George. I wanted to be that kind of a pastor. I want to be the kind of pastor that is there with the students, that is there with the kids. I want to be the kind of shepherd that's with the sheep. So more ways than you realize and more ways than you realize, brother, I have been looking up to you um, for a long time when it comes to ministry on what I want to be like as a pastor, what I want to be like as an adult, and what I just want to be like as a man. And so um, this morning we have a great blessing. Kevin George is here. He pastored in Sherman, Texas for a number of years, and now he's in northwest Oklahoma City helping with a church plant up there. But I asked him to come. My family and I were out of town this week, and so I just asked him to come. Bless our hearts. Bless my heart. And so he's going to come and and shuck the corn, if, uh, if, if that uh, term still works. But I just want to let you know the kind of man that I look up to and the kind of man that I know you'll see in the next few moments. So, Kevin, will you come and just welcome, warm our hearts this morning? Thanks, brother. That preacher's got to set his sights just a little bit higher, right? Take your Bibles, turn to John chapter 1, verse number 14. Very familiar passage. I am Kevin George. You were expecting someone taller? So was I. I really was. Um, is that really hot out there or is that just me? Okay. It probably will be here in a minute. Um, I'm really looking forward to sharing the word with you today, First Baptist Church of Wellston, Oklahoma. It's been about 22-something years, 23 years, since I preached a, church, I preached a message at a church in Wellston, Oklahoma. They haven't asked me back since, and you guys are the only ones crazy enough to do it. So, pat yourself on the back. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to diving into this. Uh, I do want to stand for the reading of God's word in John chapter 1, verse 14. When you find your place there, stand with me. Uh, I want to read this, and then I want to pray for you. Um, Not only that we would hear the voice of God this morning, but you let Van feed your people and take care of your kids. And so we are going to pray hard for you because I just don't know that I can trust you if you let Van do that. I've known Van for a little bit, haven't seen him in a while. Uh, He looks the same. I do not. And so we'll just praise him for that. This is like just mind-blowing what we read in verse number 14 of John chapter 1. And unfortunately, we have heard it so long that it's almost as if our senses have been dulled to it. And so what I hope this morning is by the grace of God and the moving of his spirit is I hope that this would have brand new life. 
as if it were the very first time we'd heard it, thought about it, gazed upon it. And if the beauty that is contained in this would not only transform our hearts, but like it would transform what we do when we leave. That's what I want. That's what I want. John chapter 1, verse number 14, the Bible says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, John says. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, you are good and gracious. You are gracious in calling us to yourself. You are gracious in giving us your word. You are gracious in giving us a family of faith that we can share in and grow together with and learn together with that will shape us and mold us. And we pray that this moment today would be one of those moments. That your spirit has free rule and reign. That you are allowed to get into the depths of our heart to speak so as what we hear your voice and not just my voice. We read your words and not hear words that are simply on a page. May you move into our very presence this morning and awaken us to the beauty of your glory and not just that we see it, but may we become like it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you again uh, for having me, for standing with me. Um, I like to do that because that kind of throws you off on how long I preach or how long I don't preach or something like that. So I know what happens when you saw me, you automatically thought I was an athlete, right? I have the stature and the build of an athlete. You thought I was a basketball player, didn't you? Tall as that guy is, he's got to be a basketball player, right? Okay, so I'm not an athlete anymore, okay, but I was... And only Van really knows whether or not I was. So you either have to believe him about what I'm about to tell you, or you have to believe me about what I'm about to tell you, okay? I believe that I was very good at one time. I really do. Like, I really believe me and Michael Jordan were about on the same level. Um, Maybe not, but close. And so I was a basketball player, I was a baseball player, and and I've always kind of had this desire and this knack that in basketball, I wanted to beat you with one play. I just wanted one play. I didn't, have to, I didn't have to play good the whole game. I just wanted one play that left your jaw on the ground. And I wanted to be, in baseball, I wanted to be the home run hitter. How many of you know what I'm talking about with a home run hitter? They're the power hitter. They're the big hitter. I mean, they bat number four because they are expecting the bases to be loaded. And pretty soon I got up in baseball and they didn't never play me at batter number four. They made me bat at number one. That, what that means is this, is, uh, is you can't hit the ball very far, little man. That's what that meant. But I listen, I, it doesn't change what I want, right? I always wanted to be this home run hitter. I wanted to be this guy that just cleaned it up. And I have to tell you that that's translated into my preaching for the last 20 some odd years. I never once have I gotten a pulpit and not wanted to knock it out of the park. Like even now, right now, I'm stand, I don't even know you from Adam. I may never see you again. I may leave this place, get in my car. You will forget my name, what I look like, what I said. And we can all go our separate ways. But even right now, I have this desire. Like I just want to knock it out of the park. And, but there's also this lingering sense in me which says, if we come here today and all you hear is a good sermon and you miss Jesus... 
then what was the point of a good sermon? You say, a good point would obviously take us to Jesus. A good sermon would. And maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't. Maybe we could debate all that. Here's what I know. We could come in here and we could laugh and we can cry and we can hug and we can amen and we can shout and we can do all of that stuff and we can still miss a real presence, encounter with the living, resurrected Christ, our redeeming King. We can do that. We can have a great sermon. Listen, we can have a sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon, and we can miss Jesus even in the things that were meant to bring us to Jesus. We can have a great worship service. I mean, it can be awesome, but wouldn't it be tragic if we had a great worship service in here and it didn't translate into anything out there? And so there is, at the same time, there is this angst in me, this, this weight on me that says, you know what, I just, I, I, I want for a second for us to behold the beauty of Jesus in such a way that it changes our life, not just what we do in here, but what we do when we leave here. And so I have this desire this morning, so I'm just, I'm going to put my cards on the table and tell you what I believe. I believe that this moment, with everything that this moment is, and it is crazy, right? I mean, this is just a crazy time. I don't necessarily know that I disagree with the fact that Jesus could come back in the next few months or not, like we learned in Revelation this morning. It seems to be setting up quite nice. I don't know all that, but here's what I do know. This is crazy. This is a crazy moment, but I believe that this moment is as ripe an opportunity as any moment has ever been for the people of God to be the people of God. And I think, man, I just think, if we would press into fully owning who he has called us to be, in here, out there, together, I mean, it could literally, in this moment, revolutionize the very world in which we live. Listen, it could, listen, bring the kingdom of heaven even into the very presence of Wellston, Oklahoma. What if his will was done here in this community as if it were done in heaven? What if? What if? And so I think about this and I think that there is a moment right now in front of us that we have a chance to be something beautiful in this world for the glory of the kingdom of God. And unfortunately, I feel like many outsiders are tripping over insiders long before they ever get to Jesus. We don't have to really lay that out. I don't have to, I don't want to try to convince you of that. Um, You may not even agree with that. That's fine. What I do want to do is this, is I want to behold the beauty of Jesus in such a way that it captivates your heart. I remember my wife, I've been married 22 years. She doesn't like to be seen in public with me. That's why she didn't come this morning. Um, It's embarrassing for her, as you can imagine. And I just, I still remember this day. I still remember the day that we got married and she walked down the aisle. I still remember this. Like my knees still kind of go a little bit weak, but she walked around where there was a center aisle church. You know, the old small churches, right? They had one aisle down the middle and a couple on the sides that only the heathen walked down the sides. If you're a real Christian, you walk down the middle aisle. And so she comes around all this crowd of people standing up and I can still see her and man just like literally stole the breath from my lungs and what if we gazed upon the beauty of Jesus in such a way this morning that it stole the breath from our lungs you ever been to the Grand Canyon and saw it and just said what what do you say to that it's just beautiful and I believe Jesus is more than that And so here's what I want to do. I want us to gaze upon the beauty of Jesus this morning. And I also want us not to just behold his beauty. I want to become like him. I want to become like him. I don't know if you know this or not. I'm sure you do. But implicit in the call to follow Jesus is the call to become like Jesus. And the best thing that could happen in this moment in time is for God's people to be like their redeeming king. So let's dive in. One verse, we'll unpack it. 
We'll gaze upon it. We'll let God do his work. As one reads the Gospels, and as one enters into the Gospel of John, you know there's four Gospels, right? I almost said there are four Gospels. Anybody see the problem? Can't count. There are four Gospels. There are three on this hand. These are the synoptic Gospels. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then when you read those guys, and then you get into the book of John, if anybody's just casually reading these, kind of in the order that they are laid out, what you will feel is you will feel that the book of John is just a little bit different. It's distinct from the way the other guys wrote their account of Jesus. And you can't help but notice that it's, it's very unique, it's very personal, whereas the previous gospel writers, they kind of just present truth, they present fact, and then they let you make your decision. They just say, hey, here's what we believe, here's what we learned about the Son of Man, here's what we watched, here's what we witnessed, you decide. John, on the other hand, he's pressing for a decision. At the end of his book, he'll tell you, I've written these things so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So all the while, John is about to, I mean, he's aiming for a decision. He's aiming for us to make up our mind, not just leaving the truths with us, but to make up our minds. The three, first three gospel writers, they present truths, and then they leave you to make your own decision. John is writing these things that we would believe. And so he's kind of wrapping up their story, completing the narrative that Matthew and Mark and Luke have presented. But what John does is he does something different. He doesn't just tell you what Jesus did. He tells you who Jesus is. So there have been hints all throughout the Gospels that this guy is different. But when John gets to telling about Jesus, he's... He's blown away. Let's just pull off the cover and tell you exactly who this man is. And so John has got this gaze of Jesus which says, you know what? There were so many things that Jesus was just like us. And yet there were so many ways in which he was so radically different and higher and better and more beautiful than us. And so John has kind of gone through this. And others describe his outward movements. John touches on his inner realities. The previous speak of his humanity. And John speaks of his deep deity. The first are primarily factual, but John is doctrinal. John doesn't just tell you what Jesus is. John interprets Jesus for us. And so what he does here in chapter one is beautiful. And the theologians are better at this than I am. But John is introducing us to this beautiful union of the God who became man. And the world has never seen anything like it. John had never seen anything like it. There's not been anything like it before. There won't be anything like it after. And John is just taken back. And so there is this play in verse number 14. Look up at verse number 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was what? The Word was God, right? And so there is kind of a play back and forth between verse number 1 and verse number 14. There's even a parenthetical thought that John, listen, I find it comforting that John gets sidetracked for a minute, just like every other preacher and teacher does, and then he kind of comes back to the point, right? So give Brother Spence some grace when he does that. He's Jesus-like, man. That's what's happening right there, okay? John-like. So, okay, so watch this play, all right, right here. And the Word became flesh, John says in verse 14. And what we see in, in verse number one is in the beginning was the Word. Not he became. So the difference is between he became and he was. So what John says for us is this, is that Jesus always was, always is, and always will be. That's what the word is. He's eternal. No beginning, no end. And so he says in verse number one that he always was in the beginning of creation. Listen, everything that was made was made by him. All things move and have their being in him. And so John is telling us that the word was always, and yet John pulls us into verse 14, and he says, but the word became. 
And then he says he became flesh. But in verse number one, he says he was God. They're, they're, they're two different things, right? And so he's pulling us now into this tension that Jesus is both God and Jesus is man. He's not part man, part God, not kind of man, kind of God. He's all man. He's all God. And so John is now pulling, and he says, in the beginning, the word was with God. But in verse 14, he says that the word dwelt among us. He took on our flesh, our bone, our frailty, our vulnerability, and he became like us. And not only did he become like us, he moved into our neighborhood and lived among us, us of all people. And so this is what John is doing, and there is this play back and forth, and there is this profound theology that John is walking us through, that he has experienced, that he has seen with his own eyes, heard with his own ears, touched with his own hands, he will say later. This is profoundly, I mean, just just heavy, awesome theology, but for John it is more than theology. John is not preaching a message, John is preaching a man. He is proclaiming somebody whom he felt, whom he heard, who he touched with his own hands, who he felt love from in his own being. And so it's more than just some deep and distant theology. I think what John is doing here is not only profoundly theological, I think it's deeply personal. I think when you listen to John, you can feel him starting to well up. It maybe is the most personal of all the Gospels, but John is not just talking about something that happened. John is proclaiming a person, a very real person, that he walked with and that he talked with, that he witnessed, that he felt love in his own heart, that he actually experienced. And as he speaks, you can feel this wonder and adoration and awestruck kind of sense of, uh, of, of his heart welling up. And so I want to just kind of let you feel that and let you see that. I just, I think this is important for us. I think the Bible is meant to change what we think. I also think the Bible is meant to change what we feel. I know that's weird. I don't know. Christians really don't know what to do with their feelings. I don't know what to do with my feelings. I'm kind of that typical guy. Do we talk about our feelings or are we just to pretend like we don't have them? And so generally I default to the other, Right. But I think, man, I just, I feel like the scripture should stir something in us. It should move us. And when John talks about the word becoming flesh, this is something that he feels. He sees beauty like he has never seen before. So let's, let's just kind of walk it out. He says in verse 14, and the word. The word is this concept that was around long before John was. and It happened long after John was. John connects this concept of the word to Jesus. And when he uses the word, he's talking about Jesus personally. It's always the way John talks about him in his letters, in this gospel. And so I, there's a thousand different reasons perhaps why John calls him the word. Here's what I know. Words are the way that we communicate, right? We communicate other ways, right? Fellas, husbands, how many of you know your wife's look? Shake your head now or you'll get the look. I mean, this is pretty simple, right? I mean, my wife can communicate with me with a look. She can stare into my eyes and literally say, Kevin George. I mean, I feel it, right? And so she can communicate with, but there are also times when she looks at me and I have no clue what she's thinking. Like it's, I was born yesterday or I just fell off the truck yesterday. I don't know what happened. But there, we've been doing this for a long time. There's still days where I don't have a clue what she's trying to tell me. 
And so the grace that she is, she speaks, and then I understand. And usually it's like, how did you miss that? But I don't, that's a side story. I just, usually she puts words to it and she communicates the thoughts and intents of her heart. And so what I know about this is regardless of all the theology that is surrounding this, and it is deep and beautiful and majestic, and I agree with all that, what I do know is this, is that he's called the word because he communicates the very heart of God in a way that nothing else ever communicated the heart of God. He will come down in verse number 18 and he will say that Jesus has made the Father known. It's literally where we get our word exegesis from. It means this, that Jesus is literally the exposition, the exposing of God's heart. If you ever want to know what God is like, Jesus is your guy. That's how we know. You can read the Old Testament and it tells us and it gives us glimpses and it gives us hope. You can read the New Testament and it unpacks theology and all these things. But all of these things are not ends in themselves. They are pointing us to Jesus who is the communication of who God is. And so he says the word. He says the word became flesh. Unheard of in any world religion, but for John, the word took on human flesh. The the wording here is very important. He doesn't say that he became a man. He says that he took on human flesh. Our flesh is vulnerable. Our Our flesh is frail. You ever notice that it doesn't always hold up? The older you get, it holds up even less. Am I right? I don't know, right? I'm still a young whippersnapper, amen? Preach that, preacher. I mean, just feed my ego for just a second. Um, I mean, this, this is the way. And so what it says here is Jesus not only, I mean, not only came close to us, but literally he made himself like us and took upon himself our very nature. And not just our very nature. John says he dwelt among us, meaning that he entered into our condition. I mean, he felt what it was like to be us. Listen, Jesus got hungry. I don't know that he ever got hangry, but he got hungry. He got tired. He needed rest. I mean, all these things Jesus entered in. He was tempted like we are, yet without sin. And Jesus was no stranger to any of your life. I mean, he literally ate, slept, breathed just like you and I do. And John is just blown away that the God who was in the beginning before all things and in him all things consist, Paul will say in Colossians, he says, this same God, he moved in as one guy said it and he took upon flesh. He looked just like me, but he was so different than me. And so this word takes on flesh and he dwells among us. Literally, he pitched his tent Here in our very presence, our presence, us, living among us. If you read verses 4 and 5, you'll read about how they rejected the light. If you read verses 10 and 11, you'll read how he came to his own and his own received him not. And that's who Jesus dwelt among. Not people who were looking for it, not people who were longing for it, not people who were in good enough shape to earn it or deserve it, but people who were rebellious and corrupt and broken and dark. And so this is the beauty that John is talking about. And then he says, and we have seen his glory. Look at this, man. This is, this is where John gets crazy. He says, and we have seen his glory. The Jewish audience would have understand, understood what we mean by glory. It is the weight of his attributes. It is the beauty of his character. And so for the Israelites, when they were led out of Egypt, they were led by the glory of God. They were led by this pillar of cloud in the day and this pillar of fire by night. And that was the Shekinah glory, the transcendent glory of God. And then uh, later on in Moses' day, when they set up the tabernacle, the presence of God dwelt in this. And so John is using 
a word that his Jewish audience knew. And he says, we saw that very glory, that very sum of all that God is. And we saw him robed in human flesh. We saw him in Jesus. We saw this beauty, this weight, this majesty, this transcendent glory in the person of Jesus Christ. And the, um, he says, as of the only son, from the Father. And so here's what John says. What we saw in Jesus could only be explained. I mean, this was something otherworldly. This was something divine. This was deity. And so John is taken aback because he is the word, which means he is one with deity. And he took on flesh, which means he is one with humanity. And somehow in Jesus, these were beautifully woven together. And John is awestruck at the beauty of Jesus Christ. Deity has now become flesh Nothing had ever been like it. Nothing will ever be like it. John is saying that there is no other explanation. He was not just God-like, but he was actually God. God in my presence. I saw him with my eyes. I heard him with my ears. I touched him with my hands. I leaned on his bosom and he embraced me. Can you feel it? This is John. This is John recounting his story. It is very personal. You've sung The Lighthouse. So my dad was a singer, not much of a singer, but he was a singer. He's been in glory for almost 20 years now, and I can still hear him. It's a personal experience for me. And John is not recounting some distant theology that he learned in a seminary somewhere. John is recounting walking in the presence of divinity himself. Jesus robed in human flesh. Can you imagine walking with the very God himself? John says, this is what I experienced. I can pick this up. I'll try not to destroy your church. Promise. This was my life. And then he sums this up. And this to me is where I kind of really wanted to push into John sums up all that he's seen of the God-man Jesus with two beautiful concepts. And he was full of them. Notice that. Jesus was not part each. He was not one kind of and the other kind of. It was full of grace and full of truth. All of his truth was gracious and all of his grace was truthful. And this Jesus, John says, this is a summary of what John has experienced. This is the summation of the divine character of God. It was the fullness of grace and truth. He experienced this perfect blending of grace. Grace is this undeserved and active. Anytime you read of this concept of grace in the scripture, it carries two major weighty concepts. One, it's not deserved. And two, it's always active and practical. It is love expressed. It is love made visible. And so John said, I saw it at its fullest. God's kindness undeserved in practical action. And I saw truth, the reality of life as it should be under the rule and reign of God. You know what truth is? Truth is this. Truth is the way it should work. Truth is the reality that should be had it not been broken when sin entered into the world. And John says, I saw both of these welded together in perfect harmony. I saw what God was like and what man was meant to be. I saw both the expression of God's love and goodwill towards men. And I saw the manifestation of reality. Jesus was not part He wasn't like my creamer that I put in my coffee. He wasn't half and half. He was full of grace and he was full of truth. He was both. And John said, I lived this. I breathed this. I felt this beautifully woven together in the person of Jesus Christ. Now here it is. John is saying not that Jesus did graceful things but that grace was his identity. It was who he was. His character. 
The acts of it just simply made it real and visible. But John says, every moment of every day I saw grace upon grace. I watched as love came to life. The very heart of God made visible, put on full display for all the world to see in real flesh and bone. I saw him touch a leper. You know who touches lepers? Nobody. Nobody touches a leper. Have you ever read that story and go, Jesus doesn't touch everybody he heals. Sometimes he just says it. But the leper he touches. Has that ever crossed your mind? Because nobody touches the leper. Nobody has ever touched the leper for as long as he's had leprosy except for Jesus. Jesus touches the untouchable. And it's very specific and it's very focused to the man's heart and the need that he has. Have you ever noticed that if you have more than one child, they are not the same? They may be both devils, but they're different devils, right? I have two sons, and they're almost grown. They're both bigger than me. They were bigger than me when they were about six. And they're just great guys. I mean, they're really good kids, but they're different as night and day. I've been spending my whole life trying to tell my oldest to speed up because he's slower than anything I've ever seen. And I've been telling my youngest his whole life to slow down because I can't catch up with him. And they're just different. And sometimes what you have to do with different kids is you have to find out a way to communicate in different ways so that they get it right. And when Jesus touches the leper, this is what I see. He didn't have to touch him. He could have just spoken. But nobody touched the leper. And when Jesus did this, he not only healed his body, he healed his soul. But this is beautiful. And John says, I watched it. I watched as he made the lame to see again. I watched as a woman was caught in the very act of adultery and they were going to stone her. And I watched him say, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. I watched grace come to life. Thousands of people fed by his hand. I watched as he wept at the grave of his friend. I watched as he wept over the, the rejection of his own people. I watched grace upon grace upon grace. I watched as the very people who nailed him to the cross, he prayed for their forgiveness while they did it. This is grace like I have never seen. The love of God put on flesh and bone and dwelt among us. I saw full grace. He says, but he was also full of truth. Amazing grace, infinite grace, but truth. Truth was his nature as much as grace was his nature. At the very same time that he was all grace, he was all truth. Not just that he spoke truth, not just that he knew truth, but that all truth came from him. He is the source of truth. Later on, he will say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. So here's what he's saying here. is that It's not that he just spoke truth or revealed truth or knew truth, but that he himself is truth. Life and reality as it was always intended to be, wrapped up in one person. He knew what nobody else knew. He spoke as nobody else had ever spoken with authority that nobody else had ever had. I mean, this is what John saw. He spoke of higher and deeper things, of bigger and better ways. He preached a kingdom as if he had already been there. He spoke of God as if he knew him personally. It was truth. He spoke of life as if he had actually designed it himself. 
When John and the others saw Jesus' life made sense, it found meaning, it found purpose, it found clarity and reason. His reality was more real than anything they had ever seen before in all of their life. And him all worked as it was originally intended to work. What he said, he did. What he promised, he fulfilled. This was a man who was trustworthy and true and faithful in character. And he was not one or the other. He was not one in isolation of the other. He didn't prefer one to the other. He was full of grace and full of truth, both welded in beautiful harmony. And John says, this is what made us know it was God, because I've never seen anything like it. Incomprehensible glory and incomparable truth, immeasurable grace. Do you not sense the wonder, the awe, that just like standing in sheer shock of who Jesus is? Sit in this for a moment. Does this not take your very breath away? That the same Jesus yesterday, who was full of grace and truth, is the same Jesus today and forever. He is full of grace and truth, even at this moment. Here's what that means for you practically it means that you can trust every word that comes out of his mouth. It doesn't always feel like it, does it? You know that whole verse that says he works all things together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose? Have you ever noticed that it doesn't always feel like he is? I know we're not supposed to talk about like that in church, right? But we can be honest for just a minute. Sometimes I have more questions than answers. And sometimes I fight to believe the things I've always believed. Sometimes it's a struggle to get up and do the things I've always been called to do. You talked about it this morning. That Hey, listen, there is struggle. there's not a person in this book who didn't struggle with this faith. And we kind of sometimes treat it as if it's this like magical bullet that kind of, I will destroy your church. It kind of is like this magical bullet that saves us and spares us from all trouble and tribulation. Listen, my friend, the storm and the rains and the winds beat upon the house that was built upon the rock just like it came upon the house that was built upon the sand. We're not spared the storm. We just have something different to cling to and so there is this beauty that John says I saw it all together and if listen if he is still grace and if he is still full of truth then everything he said you can trust you can bank on you can rest in listen when it doesn't feel like he is he is and if he is all grace listen listen if he is all grace then it doesn't matter where you are you can come to him so I use my boys a lot as illustrations and I don't know how to do this but I've always wanted to be the kind of dad that when my kids jack it up, that they don't run from me, but they run to me. Sometimes that's a big swing and a miss. I don't know how to do it. I even told my youngest the other day, this is what I want. I have no clue how to do this. But I don't want you to run and hide from me when you make a mess of things. Because I may be the only thing that can help you in that moment. And listen, dear friend, if God is full of grace, then it doesn't matter what you broke. You are accepted in him because it is never deserved. And so it doesn't matter where you are or what you've done. If Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then listen, I can trust what he says and I can always run to him. Even in my brokenness, I know we're not supposed to say this. And listen, I knew that Spence was going to have to correct a lot of theology when I left and I'm okay with that. I just kind of the benefits of being the guest speaker, right? I think even our sin ought to drive us to our redeemer. Have you ever noticed when we mess things up, we duck and hide? 
And we quote 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. I don't think that's a prescription for what you do when you're wrong. I think that's a rhythm of God's people. We're not better sin hiders. We're better sin repenters. And so when I jack it up, I mean, he says this. I write these things so that you wouldn't sin. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. If you mess it up, Jesus bled for that. Jesus paid for that. He didn't pay part of your debt, friend. He paid all of it. There's nothing left to pay, nothing left to fear. It has all been taken care of in its fullness. And now I'm free. Even when I mess it up, I'm free to run to a God who is full of truth and full of grace. So this is just beautiful. I think this is, should blow our minds that this is not anything like we see in the world. This is often not even anything we see in church. But this is who he is, full of grace and truth. And it is beautiful. And it takes your breath away to feel this deeply, that he is more truth than we could ever realize. And if he is going to be as truthful as Jesus is truthful, then I need somebody as gracious as Jesus is gracious to tell me. Because his ways are higher than mine and different than mine. And so I kind of, more than behold this though, here's what I, here's what I want to kind of come back to. I really am getting close to landing this plane. I can't walk away from this text without feeling the need to live this text. Obviously, we're not Jesus, right? Nobody Jesus in the room? Okay, just checking. Okay? And obviously, there's going to be some limitations and things like this. But I don't think this is just something we are meant to behold. This is something we should become. Full of grace and truth. Not just to feel the weight of his beauty, but to follow the example of his character. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus is not just your redeemer. He's the pattern for life. This is also the way to live. Jesus lived life so that we could see what it looked like to live under the rule and reign of God. Implicit in the call to follow Jesus is to become like Jesus. He is not just meant to be adored. He is meant to be followed. This is our redeeming king. And this was his posture in the world. He moved into the world and he lived in the world. The world that rejected him, denied him and crucified him. And he lived among them full of grace and truth. Never separate, never in isolation, never one against the other. He was both in its fullness. And doesn't it seem like us, we always gravitate towards one or the other? Depending on how you were raised and a thousand other factors in your life, I bet the room is full of truth people and the room is full of grace people. You want to take a test? I want a show of hands or you just want to pretend like nobody else in your church knows who you are? We won't do that, right? But I'm sure somebody's got to know, right? I mean, I kind of lean on the truth side. My wife kind of leans on the grace side. She has to, right? To be married to guys like us, right? So, I mean, this is... We always kind of just lean to one or the other. And we always kind of gravitate towards one in isolation of the other. But does it not seem that if our king was full of grace and truth, then we should be both a grace people and a truth people? It doesn't ever seem in Jesus that it's either or, but that it's always both and. And yet we still gravitate towards one or the other. We often pursue truth in isolation from grace or grace in isolation from truth. And I would tell you that perhaps there is nothing more destructive than making disciples of all nations than leaning to one without the other. There's perhaps nothing more destructive than this. Trying to emphasize the one versus the other, we actually never get either. And so the way this works is very simple. It is this. But only someone as gracious as Jesus can tell us the truth as high as Jesus does. Grace without truth is just being nice. 
It, it's, it's accepting people where they are and it's obsessed with being loved and loving and that is all good and great but true, grace apart from truth is not God's grace. And what it does is this, is it accepts us where we are but it gives us no power to change. So when you major on grace but you leave out truth, it's great because we accept people where they are and we should, but if we never give truth, then there's no power to be changed. And I don't know if you know this, but God is out to transform us. And so, but it's also the other way. I mean, it is. If you pursue truth without grace, then you've got something that people can find transformation in, but nobody wants to hear what you've got to say. Because you're harsh and you're bitter and you're angry. And, you're, and listen, we've seen this time and again a thousand times over. Without truth, gra- uh, uh, without truth, grace isn't grace. And without grace, truth isn't truth. Truth without grace is often just being harsh. Its primary goal is to be right. It has the power to help people be transformed, but it refuses people where they actually are. You have to change to be accepted. So they are loyal to a cause, but we never know if they're loyal to us. All the time, champions of truth, wielding truth without grace as a weapon to condemn and control. And champions of grace, wielding grace without truth as a way to love people but never give them any hope of transformation. And Jesus was both, beautifully both. And I wonder what would happen if God's people, rather than pursuing one or the other, pressed in at this moment to both. What if God's people intentionally leaned into being both? For Jesus, never either or, always both and. Would it not be revolutionary if people in this world saw both grace and truth at its fullness in us? Does it not seem that following Jesus, such a beautiful Jesus, would also produce beautifully, remarkably beautiful lives in the lives of his people? Does it not feel like that if we practiced grace and truth, we would be this life-giving force as the church was always meant to be? What if this, what if the people whose homes were breaking right now ran to the people of God rather than from the people of God? What if single mothers questioning whether or not they, what they should do with this child, whether or not they should give it up, or what if they ran to the church instead of from the church? Is that crazy? Is that too distant? Listen, grace and truth would give them a space where, yes, listen, I don't necessarily know that I have all the answers for you, but you are safe to struggle here and find truth here. What if God's people, were, our arms were as open, as wide as his, and we didn't shy away from truth either. We love and we gave truth would it not be revolutionary would people not just listen I don't know that everybody would agree with us I don't even know that everybody would like us Jesus was full of grace and they killed him but I do know this you can't deny him and what would it look like what would it look like if God's people pressed into both grace and truth I tell you what it would look like if this church ever moved or God ever called you out Wellston wouldn't be the same what if that? What if that? What if your neighbors in this community knew that you were here, knew that you were full of both grace and truth? I tell you what, the Bible says of the first church in Acts that they had favor with all men. Not just the good men. Not just the Christian men. They had favor with all. What would it be like? For us to hold truth like no one else holds to. To give grace just like the grace that we've been given. If John said that God dwelling among men was characterized as full of grace and truth, then does it not stand to reason that we as people should be known for the same? 
So now let me give you just some quick things and I'm going to quit. We never preach any action apart from the gospel. What I mean by that? I mean this. Jesus doesn't love you because you do grace and truth well. Jesus doesn't love you because you're a great church. Jesus loves you because that is who he is, not who you are. And so, yes, press into this. Yes, lean into this. But never in any way make his love and acceptance in your identity based upon or conditional upon whether or not you do this well. If we, if we try to make this about how he accepts us and how he loves us, we will always get off. The gospel should be our motivation to live from this. We're not working for this. We're working from this. And so understanding that God loves you in this moment as much as he has ever loved you or will ever love you regardless of what that moment looks like. Understanding that gives us the freedom to press into both grace and truth. So we always preach this from the gospel, not for it. Always from acceptance and never for it. And here's, here's just a couple of practical tips. I want to be full of grace and truth. You will never be full of grace and truth apart from Jesus. So spend much time with Jesus. And you will never be full of grace and truth if you stand at a distance from the people who need grace and truth. If a church stands in isolation from the very community that she's been called to love and transform, then she stands no chance of ever loving and transforming that community. I know this goes against all the stuff we've ever been taught, but if God's people are never around those who are not God's people, our heart will never break for those who are not God's people. So let's do this. Let's stand together. I want to pray and then I'm going to turn the service over to Brother Spence. And I just, I hope and I pray that in this moment, grace and truth, not either or, but both and, would be your heart, your desire, and what you lean into. Father, we are grateful that you are full of both. If you just gave us truth, there would be no hope. There would be no life. There would be no redemption. There would be no grace. And you brought truth to life and you put flesh and bone on it. And we're so grateful that you put grace with it. We're so grateful that it's not based upon our merit or our worth or our good deeds or the absence of the bad deeds. We're so glad that you love us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we are so grateful that grace and truth were beautifully woven in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray now that it would be beautifully woven into your people that represent your kingdom now. He was full in grace and truth. Make us full of grace and truth. Let us not just give grace without truth. Let us not just give truth without grace. Let us press into both, for both have the power to love, embrace, accept, and transform. What if, Father, we were full of both? May it ever be. It will only be by your grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.